This evening I'd like to talk about the meditation and specifically I'd like to talk about insight. Now, as we all know or you've read, this practice we're doing here is vipassana meditation or insight meditation. Yet it's also clear that insight is a word that's really quite loosely bandied around and probably has many, many different associations for us. You know, we don't understand something or we feel confused about something and sure enough, someone's going to say to us, well, you need some insight. Um, We feel we have a problem about something and you can also be sure that someone will be bound to say to us, well, what you really need is a little insight. And we talk about practicing insight. Sometimes the word is used in ways as if it is a kind of magical pill that we swallow that's going to transform everything around us and everything within us. It is not always understood how this practice actually does bring about insight. And sometimes it it does indeed seem hard to understand that. I mean, what has walking around like a zombie got to do with living in wisdom, you know? Uh, What has, you know, being aware of your breath? Well, big deal, you know? What has that got to do with being very insightful? However, I would say there is a relationship between the practice and the development of insight, and it's helpful to be aware of what that relationship is. Insight does imply understanding, and probably for all of us, understanding also does have the implication of change and transformation. We're often cautioned not to have any expectations about meditation, yet most people do. And many of those expectations are valid and realistic. Having expectations of meditation, I feel we also do expect something of the insights we hope to have in our meditation. We hope that our insights are going to be vehicles to bringing about change, inner change and outer change. And this is surely what we do expect from this practice that we do. We hope or anticipate that this practice will help us to move perhaps from a state of disharmony to a greater sense of harmony. We hope perhaps that this practice will help us to move from a place of confusion to a place where we feel more balanced and stable. We hope too that this practice may be the bridge between that allows us to move from that place where we feel closed or disconnected or alienated to a place where we experience a greater sense of connectedness and oneness and compassion, where we are able to feel a greater sense of open-heartedness. We don't do this practice in order to stay the same. No one comes into a retreat hoping to leave a retreat exactly the same as the day they began it. It is valid and it's realistic to have expectations. As long as our expectations are really related 
to where we are now, to our energy in this moment, to our capacities and possibilities in this moment. As long as our, our expectations don't have to lead to creating of ideals and goals, our expectations can be an expression of our, an intuitive sense of our own possibilities. And in that, our expectations can be very inspiring and motivating. In many of the changes that we do hope to bring about through the meditation, it does seem that insight is something of the key to bringing about those changes. That insight is the ingredient that is going to allow those changes to be made. Most of us have had sufficient life experience and also sufficient disappointment and disillusionment in our lives to know that outer change is not always enough to bring about the freedom and peace and meaning that we seek for. That outer change is often totally valid and absolutely needed, but it can't deliver to us that inner sense of connectedness and understanding of ourselves alone. And when we are aware of that, we do turn inwardly and we look to deepen in understanding, to deepen in self-understanding, and to deepen in insight. And sometimes in that inner looking and in the quest for understanding, insight assumes an almost magical characteristic, as if it can transform everything. And this is important for us to look at. Is insight enough? Does insight have the capacity to bring about transformation? Or what kind or what quality of insight is needed? And what even do we need to understand? You know, what is it that is important for us to understand? This meditation that we do, the practice that we do, is directed towards the development of wisdom. And the wisdom that it's concerned with can be described as lying in two essential areas. One area of insight that this practice is concerned with is the whole area of relative insight, which includes self-understanding. It includes the whole area of personal and insight, understanding who we are in this moment. Self-understanding implies really being in touch inwardly with everything that moves us the patterns, the forces that move us, that direct us in our lives, understanding the basis of our choices and aspirations, understanding the images that we hold whether to see whether they are false or true, understanding the way our inner processes unfold as we construct particular ways of seeing ourselves in the world, understanding our feelings and emotions, all of this is self-understanding. It's coming a little closer to who we are. It's a way of being visible inwardly, being awake to ourselves, coming out of a place of feeling numb or disconnected, and really developing a moment-to-moment -moment connection with our own being. Another aspect of relative insight is not just to do with our inner reality, our personal reality, 
But another aspect of insight is understanding the fundamental principles of life that we all share in. Understanding, deeply understanding, and on a moment-to-moment level with an intuitive sense, the nature of impermanence and change that we are all share in, the, in, in being exposed to. Understanding the nature of discontent, of suffering, and understanding its causes. And two, understanding the, the transparency of separation. Understanding what no self actually means, not a negation of I, but what no self in its most profound sense in the absence of division actually means. The purpose of developing that insight, the purpose of developing that understanding is transformation. That is what this practice is concerned with. It's concerned with radical transformation, inwardly and outwardly. Transformation in our ways of seeing, in our ways of being inwardly and in the world. Transformation that will free us of pain. Transformation that will free us of conflict. That will bring a greater sense of meaning and of well-being and of wisdom to our lives. The purpose of insight is to liberate, to bring about a greater sense of freedom and to enable us to live in that spirit of freedom in our lives. To understand oneself is to be able to accept ourselves and to have access to the tools of transformation. To understand the nature of existence and to be able to live in harmony with, in rapport with the nature of existence as it actually is, would bring about a dramatic change in our lives. To really live in accord with actuality and with the way things are would bring mean an end to defensiveness and an end to aggression. It would mean knowing how to bring to an end fear and how to bring to an end clinging. Perhaps we, can, we have a glimpse or we have a sense of the profound freedom, profound freedom and, and liberation that would, there would be when we can live without fear and without clinging and without holding. And perhaps too we have a glimpse of the depth of compassion and the depth of love and sensitivity we are able to experience when we are not constricted by defensiveness and by clinging. There's a whole other area of insight that this practice is concerned with, and it is understanding the nature of reality, understanding the nature of truth, understanding the nature of oneness and connectedness. This practice is about enlightenment. Enlightenment comes to be a word that's never mentioned, as if it's uh, something that people did 2,500 years ago and it went out of fashion or something and now we work on getting better or on feeling better about ourselves. But the practice, the heart of this practice, is really about profound liberation and sometimes that is very hard to conceive of because so often we do conceive of liberation or enlightenment as being the territory of special people. Too, too often we conceive of enlightenment 
as being something that must exist far in the future or at some different time or to some different lifestyle but not to the one in which we live. Or we might think of enlightenment as certainly being a good idea but very, very inaccessible. And yet the, the very basis, the fundamental basis of this practice is that enlightenment is the spiritual heritage of each individual is the essence of each of our consciousness and accessible to each one of us. The process of meditation, the process of cultivating this form and this practice is one way, and I stress it's only one way, of entering into the path of insight. In this practice we cultivate attention and we cultivate sensitivity it's not that we practice insight, but rather what we do is we cultivate an inner environment. We cultivate an inner landscape that, is, that facilitates the development of insight. Meditation can be described as cultivating a landscape which is actually receptive to understanding. It's receptive to inner wisdom emerging. When we sit, there is nothing more complicated in that action than in, than in the act of sitting, what we do is we meet ourselves. We simply meet ourselves. And our practice or our attention is really just to be aware of the quality of that meeting, just to be really present in it, not to avoid, not to be resist, but just to be really present in that inner meeting a meeting in which we also meet this moment. An understanding, too, that in meeting this moment, on a very deep level, we actually meet all moments. That in being present in one moment in time, we actually meet all of time. That in being present in one breath, we are actually present in all breaths. And this practice is a way of coming closer to that sense of connectedness and that sense of being totally grounded in one moment and within ourselves. The, de the development of personal understanding, the development of self-understanding is an essential ingredient in the deepening of meditation. Now there are schools of thought which tend to dismiss self-understanding or personal insight as being, you know, simply too mundane or um, too superficial or, or too self-occupied. And yet I feel it's necessary to say that understanding ourselves is the vehicle to accepting ourselves. There is probably not another vehicle to accepting ourselves apart from knowing ourselves very, very deeply and acceptance is essential, not a passive kind of acceptance. I'm not talking about the kind of acceptance, you know, where we sort of part, you know, are a spectator on our inner life, you know, and we say, oh, yes, you know, well, I'm angry, that's just the way I am, and I always will be, or, you know, I'm hopeless, you know, and, well, you know, there's not much I can do about it. Not that kind of acceptance. The acceptance that's really important in this practice is clearly connecting with what actually is and knowing how to embrace it. 
knowing how to embrace it without resistance and without hostility. This is acceptance. And it's an acceptance that is transforming. And we need to appreciate the role that that quality of acceptance actually plays in our meditation and in our lives. When we don't know that quality of acceptance, knowing how to embrace what is wholeheartedly, then that lack of acceptance colors every area of our lives. It colors our relationships with other people, it colors our our relationship to the world around us, it colors our relationship to the very moment itself. And when there's not acceptance, what is there? There's denial, or there's suppression, or there's avoidance. And in all of those, so often we find ourselves in a state of struggle, in a state of war. When we don't understand that level of acceptance, so often we are warring both with ourselves and with the moment that we're experiencing and all it brings to us. That inner struggle or that lack of acceptance has some very specific characteristics that we become aware of. One of them is the word should. What should be happening? What I should be experiencing? Who I should be? What it, where I should be going? That should illustrates, whether it is you know, very conscious or not, it illustrates actually our divorce and our disconnection from the moment. Our expectations, our unrealistic expectations that are constantly leading us to reach away from ourselves towards something else are another expression of that conflict. The conflict, the tension between what is and what should be also leads us into a particular way of being in this moment and way of relating to it and to ourselves. And that lack of acceptance, that struggle, leads, manifests itself in an attempt to be constantly modifying and altering and manipulating our present experience. And we find ourselves doing that in the world around us. It doesn't conform to the way we feel it should be. We find ourselves doing it inwardly. You know, I shouldn't be experiencing this, therefore I'll try to be like this. You know, I shouldn't be angry, I should try to be more loving. You know, I shouldn't be um, greedy, you know, I should try to be more giving. That constant attempt to alter and to manipulate and to modify, we need to appreciate, keeps us very busy. It does keep us very, very occupied, which is interesting. You know, it's very interesting to be seeing what we can rearrange in the present moment and what we can rearrange in our experience. And it's also satisfying on one level, that quality of busyness, because we're so much in charge, you know, and we're so much in control. And yet you probably notice that it doesn't really bring about any real change. It brings about at times some very superficial and some very cosmetic changes and yet it doesn't really bring about any fundamental alterations. That gap between what is and what should be means struggle and it means difficulty and it means we experience these swings in our minds and in our feelings where one moment we're so elated and so happy because the present moment has conformed to the way we think it should be. 
we are absolutely delighted. You know, you have a sitting and, you know, you can see, you look around the meditation room, you know, smiles on the faces, you know, and you look at another face and there's this great torment and frown. And often what that torment and frown is illustrating is basically this is not what should be happening. <laughs> this is not what I should be experiencing. And so with that caught in that struggle, we not only experience the swings of the highs, but with the highs, we also take the valleys of the despair. And they are married. They are irrevocably tied together. We feel to fail and we feel to success, to succeed. And we often have some remarkably false measures of success and failure. I mean, things get rather comic when we congratulate ourselves for our success in watching two breaths in a row. (laughs) Things are also something a little off, you know, when we find ourselves beating ourselves because we missed one. (laughs) You know, something has gone a little imbalanced in our measures of success and failure, and we often don't realize how much those measures how are related to the models we've constructed and the images we've constructed, and then our own comparing of ourselves to those models and images. When we have this struggle between what is and what should be, when we are still not quite in touch with acceptance, we also tend to produce an awful lot of goals. And goals are really, you know, if you don't have any goals when you begin a retreat, it usually takes about a day to create them. Many people come on retreats with agendas of goals to get to reach on this particular retreat. You know, last one I worked on my hostility, and this one I'm going to work on my possessiveness. And, you know, my goal is to be very generous, you know. And sometimes our goals are created on a moment-to-moment level. And yet we also notice how elusive those goals tend to be. And the reason that they're so elusive is that our goals are so disconnected from acceptance. Our goals are so disconnected from what is actually taking place in the moment. But what we do with those goals, it's a form of punishment, is that we're constantly judging the present moment. And our meditation actually becomes used as a sort of watchdog and censor. And instead of our meditation being a way of being present with what is, our meditation becomes a judge of what is. And this is a very kind of subtle trap that we can easily get caught in. And with our goals, we're constantly reaching towards something that is not present, not with us, not yet achieved. And reaching, we become so busy in that reaching that we forget about attunement. We forget about rapport. We forget about harmonizing. We even forget about the present moment. And we forget that actually our greatest teacher is the present moment. That this moment does hold every single thing that we need for transformation. We can't see it because we are so busy reaching away from the moment that we're in. The beginning of meditation can almost be described as understanding this struggle. 
Meditation almost begins when we really begin to understand the need and the significance of acceptance, of clear acceptance. Also begins when we begin to understand self-acceptance. Because in tuning into ourselves as we are in the moment, we can drop so much of that struggle, and that struggle does consume so much energy. In the beginning, as we begin this practice, it's actually, as we see, it's a, it's a very, very simple practice. There's nothing complicated about it. And we also experience how very, very difficult it is to be simple and how difficult it is to attune ourselves just to what is. You know, we keep trying. And often the beginnings of retreats, the beginning times of meditation, there's often a lot of trying you know, trying to be more attentive and trying to be more focused and trying to be more mindful and trying to be more gentle. And we often seem to have to try hard at everything. And at times it feels to be a very uphill struggle. You know, we, we have a moment where we feel we've tried and, and we've made it and then no sooner do we kind of blink our eyes and we seem to have lost it again and we have to try to get back there again. It's difficult, not because the meditation's difficult, it's difficult because of our resistances. And resistances, you know, again, is one of those words that's a little bit vague. But resistance is a way of blocking, disconnecting. And resistances come up in a retreat for different reasons. Sometimes resistances arise because when we turn inwardly, we don't find what we want to find. We're disappointed. You know, we would like, all of us, to turn our attention inwardly, of course, and find endless fields of bliss and calm and tranquility and happiness and, and serenity and all those wonderful word, words. And instead, you know, too often we turn our attention inwardly and there's muddle and there's confusion and there's stickiness. And it's disappointing to us. You know, it's frustrating to us. Sometimes resistances arise because of the whole area of control. We suddenly turn our attention inwardly and we are really confronted almost on the first sitting that we do that we are not in control. And this is really hard. You know, we think we are in control and we spend so much of our lives trying to uh, foster this illusion of control. And look what happens when we come to sit. You know, we say, you know, I'm going to watch my breath and we find it just doesn't work. Or we say, you know, mind be still, you know, and our mind is merrily thinking away, you know. Or we say, you know, I'm going to let go of that, let go of a baloney, you know, and stick into us like a burr. And we find that little element of control is just not there. Sometimes, too, we have certain expectations that aren't met. You know, once I uh, remember working with a yogi who came and, and you know, come, came under very sort of difficult, extraordinarily difficult life circumstances, very painful and very unpleasant, her outer environment. And she came and she said, you know, I really need some peace. Would you teach me to meditate? Because I really absolutely need some peace. So I said, fine, you know. 
and you know just did what we do here you know just pay attention to your breath it comes in it comes out you know and just be there and so she was very conscientious and she went home and paid her attention to her breath coming in and out you know a couple of hours a day even and came back a week later absolutely furious with me and and she said you know i paid attention to my breath and suddenly i felt so much anger arising and so much rage arising and i didn't want to be aware i wanted peace <laughs> and it's it's hard for us to understand sometimes that the whole path to peace may very well involve going through some shadows and traveling through some valleys that this is a process of waking up and waking up is often painful it's not always easy sometimes we spend a lot of years blocking and dulling and numbing ourselves and learning to be awake and to be vital and to connect it, of course there is a little tension and a little pain and a little discomfort involved in that process. The resistances arise and we find though that we stay with it. Hmm? For different reasons, we don't always even know why, and yet we're still here. You know, sometimes it's desperation, you know, knowing, of course, you know, you could get in your car and drive away, and if you could leave your resistances with somebody else, it would be all right. But the thought of having to take them when you're aware of them, and it was even worse. I mean, it was not so bad when you weren't aware of them, but to have, be aware of them and have to take them home with you is terrible. You know, sometimes it's fear, you know, you know, you can't get out of here. Everybody will know you blew it and you left. You'd never be able to live with yourself again because you were the only one. But there's often other reasons, too, that keep us hanging in here with the knee pains and the back pains. Because sometimes we actually, often we do have a quality of trust and faith in ourselves. And we do have a quality of trust and faith in our potential and our possibilities. And I feel we do very often have a quality of trust and faith in the practice, too. And know that this is part of the process. And know that we need to be with this and know really that the present moment does hold what we need and that there really isn't anywhere else to go. We sustain the practice and we find that the struggle becomes less. The struggle does lessen. We find thoughts and feelings that arose yesterday and that may have just totally overwhelmed us arise today and they don't. We find that we are not so overpowered by everything that arises. We find we have moments where we actually feel to be in touch with what is taking place within us. We don't feel to be so much of a victim of our minds. And this is a very radical change and a very radical and important shift to feel that we actually relate to ourselves rather than having to endure ourselves or just being subject to ourselves we find that we're actually relating. And not only are we relating to ourselves and our own inner processes, we find actually that that same sensitivity and that same quality of relationship is beginning to ripple outwardly. We hear a bird and it's like it's the first time we've ever heard it. You know, and you walk on a path that you've walked a thousand times before and suddenly you see the budding leaf on the tree. You know, and you, you see the, the, the insect crawling and you're really there. And you're aware too that not only that, that, that waking up is actually a very organic waking up. That our capacity to see and to feel and to touch 
is so deeply, deeply enhanced. We find, too, as we sustain the practice, that, you know, there's been talk of resources. Lo and behold, we find that we have one or two ourselves. And this sometimes comes as a great surprise. You know, that not being a victim, sometimes something arises, a feeling or an image that's difficult. And we find we can actually apply what we've heard, that we can embrace it with sensitivity, that we can embrace it with open-heartedness, that we can embrace it with compassion, and that we can actually connect. We find, too, as that develops, as the practice does develop, and it has its own momentum. That's what's so wonderful about this practice, is we just have to be there for it. You know, you don't have to be totally responsible for it. You just have to be there and be willing to be awake, and it has its own momentum. It is a kind of unfoldment. We find we begin to have glimpses of calm, glimpses of peace, moments of serenity, moments of oneness. It's not to say that there are never any valleys anymore, but where in the beginning of the practice all we cared about was the peaks and getting on top and staying there, we begin to find actually that within the valleys that we experience in our days and in our sittings, those, the valleys are the places that often hold so much insight for us, that offer to us so much understanding. Because in the valleys that we experience here, we are in touch with the places where we get stuck. We're in touch with the places where we contract. We're in touch with what we need to learn from with we're in touch with what we need to learn about. And we begin to appreciate the richness of those valleys. And what are those valleys? The times of darkness, the times when everything seems to fall apart, the times when we despair, the times when we feel so confused. What is happening in those times? Those are the moments. Those are the moments when we're not attuned to what is. Those are our moments of disconnection. Those are our moments, our avoidance, our our negation, and they hold the capacity for deep transformation. Those valleys are created in different ways. Sometimes those valleys are created by holding, holding on to things that we have. You know, you have one of those moments of serenity and you want it to last, try holding it. It'll turn around and kick you in the rear end. you, have a, you try to hold on to a moment of calm, and it's painful. We experience holding and grasping as pain. We begin to see that. Sometimes it's holding on or reaching for things that we don't have. We experience grasping exactly the same way. It is actually painful. Sometimes it's holding on to the last sitting. We'd like it to come back. We come back and we find it's not there, and it's painful. And we can experience, we learn from those moments. We're learning from our stories. We are learning from our experience. And that is where our path is. That is where our wisdom is. That's where our learning is. It's not somewhere else, not in some book. It's right here and right now. And we experience that pain. We appreciate its effects. And we appreciate that at time, the end of that pain is simply is to let go. And that letting go, you know, is not, you know, it often is this very charged word, you know, let go of things, you know, I've really got to try and let go. But actually letting go is joyful. Letting go is compassionate. Letting go is liberating. 
it, it's, it's good news. You know, it's not, it's not that it's, you know, it's something that we should try hard to do. It's something that we begin to welcome and to appreciate on a moment-to-moment level. It's liberating effect. We, we, we appreciate, too, that judgment is pain. And we learn from it. We have to learn from the effects of these things. We appreciate the power of our conditioning, but we also appreciate the power of our awareness, that we don't have to be bound by that conditioning. We don't have to contract, that we can actually hold it and embrace it in the light of our awareness. And we begin to appreciate how very empowering awareness is and how very liberating awareness is that this process of waking up enables us, actually empowers us to walk in creative ways with that which is destructive within ourselves and with that which is truly enhancing within ourselves. We learn to utilize our own resources, how to call upon our sensitivity, how to call upon our compassion, how to call upon our open-heartedness, that these are gifts Parts of our being, gifts of our, uh, we, that we hold within ourselves that we can utilize to heal, to bring clarity, to bring sensitivity. That is often a time of many insights that come in those valleys. And so those insights do have different depths. Sometimes we have an insight into a pattern or a tendency that we have, and it suddenly comes clear what is taking place in that process. You know, there are those aha type of insights that come in neon lights, you know. And we see something so clearly, and we also see that in the seeing of it, it does seem to dissolve. This is a rather high experience. You know, you, you see something, you see it dissolve, you say, this is wonderful stuff. You know, uh, look, I can dissolve this. And often there's a feeling, um, you know, it's gone forever. You know, I've understood that now. Now it's gone forever, you know, and it's never going to come back. And sometimes that's true, that the depth of insight can be so profound that you really see something and it is dissolved. It just doesn't return. Most other times that's not true. Most other times the, the, um, on the level of personal insight, the seeing is the first step. We see something, and it is the very first step in the path of understanding. We don't, you know, we often have this idea, you know, that um, you work through something and then it's finished. So that's what we'd like, you know, like you work through your hindrances and you hope, you know, they're never going to come back again, you know, or you work through your anger and you hope it's never going to come back again. You know, uh, there's often a kind of sense in this practice that you just work through one thing after another thing after another thing after another thing and it's all very compartmentalized and packaged and eventually you get to this place where of enlightened retirement where you don't have to work through anything anymore because you've kind of come to the end of all the packages that you have to work through. But mostly that's an illusion. Um, if it, it, I think it's more true to say that, you know, wishing for freedom and wishing to really be awake, we have to treasure the path of freedom and we have to treasure the path of being awake in every moment and that there may not be such a place of retirement. Sometimes people, you know, feel that they have a lot of insights on a retreat and then they leave a retreat and they feel, well, their insights disappear, you know, or they lose their insights. 
You know, I, I mean, I have a whole history of losing insights. I'm an expert in losing insights. I lose them everywhere. You know, I lose them in airline offices and post offices and all kinds of places. But we don't actually lose insights. This is what's important to understand. When we're experience that sense of having lost an insight. You know, I used to be so clear and now I'm not clear. I used to be see something so clearly and now I'm confused again. It's not that our insights are invalid. It's not that there wasn't any depth in our insight. I feel right that the question we have to ask ourselves is how much are we willing to apply our insights? How much are we actually willing to live in accord with our insights? You know, because sometimes we see what causes us suffering and yet to let go of it may mean letting go of some pleasure or it may mean letting go of some safety or it may mean letting go of some familiarity. And at times we know why we're in places of confusion and we know why we're in places of, of, of anger or hostility. And really this practice is more than just seeing. It's also about application. Insight is only transforming if it is applied, if it is lived, if we are really have an inner dedication to its application, to making insight not a memory of something that happened to us, but a spirit in which we live our lives. And this is really important, that insight doesn't happen to us. It lives within us as long as we are in touch with it. Wisdom doesn't happen to us. You know, wisdom lives within it, within us, as long as we live in the spirit of wisdom. This path is founded on, on the four noble truths. You know, in the first three, we often welcome wholeheartedly, you know, or, or at least can understand very clearly that there is suffering and there is a cause to suffering. And most importantly, you know, we're very delighted with the third, that there's an end to suffering. But we have to make that one extra leap that says there's a path to the end of suffering. And that is where our in, the, what our insight is really concerned with, is learning how to live in the spirit of wisdom and in the spirit of compassion. As we sustain the practice, sustaining this practice, it will deepen. It does deepen. It enters into whole other dimensions. Sometimes we enter into the field of meditation experiences. If you cultivate a technique of meditation, you gain the benefits of that particular technique. And they are varied and they are many. There are deep states of concentration and deep states of absorption that are so filled with bliss and with joy and with stillness that the desire to reach out for anything is just minimized because one knows deeply that there's nothing one can gain that can really touch that joy. There are states of experience where one experiences really altered states of consciousness. There are states of experience where one can exper experience explosions of loving kindness and compassion inwardly. There are states of experience where one can be so in touch on a moment-to-moment -moment level with change that all one sees is an unfolding process of impermanence in everything. Again, it can be profoundly liberating. And those states of experience are in relationship to the development of this practice. The states of experience are valid in the wisdom that they offer us, in the freedom that they offer us, not as an experience in itself, but in the freedom and the learning that they offer us. 
to trust in our own freedom, to trust in our own capacity to be awake, to trust in the possibilities of our own consciousness. And too, as the practice deepens, we find that there is really less to do on ourselves. You know, the things still arise, but there's less impression. There's less of a feeling I have to work on this or work on that. One really feels as the practice deepens, what happens is that our consciousness expands. The horizons of our consciousness expand. And what the, that difference between inner and outer really begins to fall away. It really does begin to dissolve. And we become much more in touch with an, an unfolding, changing universe in which we are one part of it but in which everything around us and everything within us is participating. And we begin to see impermanence and change on such a profound level. And it's liberating. It is truly liberating. It's not that, you know, we, we become dysfunctional or, or, or life becomes meaningless. Rather, every moment becomes so totally filled with meaning and so totally filled with, with vitality because in that profound level of connection we appreciate the absolute uniqueness and preciousness of each moment. We appreciate on, on deep and subtle levels the way in which suffering is caused, not my suffering, but the whole dimensions of grasping and holding and resisting and how that alienates us from life how that alienates us from the heart of life and the heart of ourselves. And we come to know what it means not to grasp, what it really means to live in harmony with actuality. And in that depth of seeing and that depth of awareness too, that the transparency of self is so apparent. Not that I become nothing, you know, and not that, I, you know, you know, that we again become dysfunctional because there's no one to get up in the morning and no one to do the dishes and no one to brush their teeth or anything else. It's not that level of negation of I. The, the transparency of self is the transparency of division, that there is no separation, that there are differing, differing manifestations and differing expressions of truth unfolding in each moment, but in their essence, there is only oneness. As the practice deepens too, there is really a sense of the heart opening. It's not just a conceptual deepening, but with the development of wisdom, the heart does open because the fear and the grasping and the defensiveness are so minimized and the love and the compassion and the loving kindness and the warmth within us emerges. Is, is, it comes to fruition, is present, is visible within ourselves, and it's visible in everything around us. And coming to that place of awareness, really being in touch with that quality of awareness, is also knowing a quality of grace. You know, it's not something that you work for anymore. It is where you are, and it is in and through everything that quality of grace and receptivity and stillness in which there it can be liberating insight. May all beings live with sensitivity. May all beings live with wisdom. May all beings live with compassion. Thank you.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.